at the sponsor level, it looks like a clear case cut of fraud, basically. So, you know, um, they were they have a contract where they're supposed to be investing in the specific property, um, at least according to, you know, the investors. I'll just say, you know, allegedly what happened is that uh, this sponsor took the money that was supposed to go into this property and allegedly has fed it off into the other pro- office properties and maybe even their own personal controlled investments and who knows what, where it was, but the, their entire kind of office called an empire was, it was not doing well. They, they, they had done well for a long time and then it started collapsing. And then, you know, it looks like this money was, it was allegedly misappropriated. So looks like uh, kind of like straightforward fraud, unfortunately. Good morning. This is Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. We're your hosts, Isabella Farr and Susanna Cavanaugh. It's September 11th. Today, we're delving into the newly contentious world of real estate crowdfunding and a debacle that really rocked the industry over the summer. That's right. We're looking at what happened after Nightingale Properties failed to close on a deal in Atlanta after it raised more than $60 million from investors through this online platform called CrowdStreet. And we'll talk about some of the issues with crowdfunding and what regulations one investor thinks should change in order for the industry to succeed in the future. We also talked to the CEO of FundRebel, which is a startup in the crowdfunding space, to better understand what sets his venture apart from platforms like CrowdStreet. But first, let's go over the news of last week. So we finally got some information on how New York-based Signature Bank's unsold loan book will be marketed. As a refresher, Signature Bank failed in March, and soon after, New York Community Bank picked up its deposits and some of its debt, but declined to buy a key portfolio. Commercial real estate. Yes. So $33 billion in CRE loans, nearly half of that is rent-stabilized, and industry observers expect some of that debt to be distressed or on the verge of it. So the FDIC announced it would hold a majority equity stake in those loans and then set up a number of joint ventures to bring in firms that would take a minority stake. And what's the significance there? The thought is, with the FDIC calling the shots, whoever buys that minority stake in the debt in the first round would be less likely to foreclose, which is really the leading fear when it comes to these loans. The FDIC did say the JV partners would still have that ability, but observers see it as a stopgap measure because whenever the JV partners ultimately sell the debt, the buyer who would be picking it up on the cheap would have an incentive to foreclose. Got it. And we now have a time frame for the bidding process, right? Yeah. So bidding starts November 1st and it closes December 14th. So we have a bit of time until we see how it all plays out. We also got big news from WeWork last week. So after the firm told investors in August there was, quote, substantial doubt it could actually remain in business, WeWork announced it would be negotiating nearly all of its leases. That could be a big blow for landlords. Undoubtedly. One landlord told The Real Deal that WeWork has cried wolf in the past, but it actually seems serious this time. WeWork has already closed a number of New York City offices, but it still maintains a sizable footprint. It's also closed locations in San Francisco, L.A. We've covered this, you know, a bunch of times. 
And in some buildings, a WeWork departure could tank the property at 315 West 36th Street, which is an office building in the Garment District. WeWork quit paying rent on a lease that covers 93% of the property's rentable area. The landlord fell delinquent on debt payments a few months later, and the $77 million loan on the property was transferred to special servicing for payment default in June. Moving back to multifamily, Rockstar Capital, which is a prominent multifamily syndicator based in Texas, is facing foreclosure from MF1 Capital, one of the largest lenders in the space. We did a story about them a couple months ago. Rockstar defaulted on a $51 million loan tied to an apartment complex in Houston called Aspire at 610. Was that, I'm just kind of guessing here, but was that another floating rate snafu? Yep, you got it. So Rockstar borrowed in March 2022, just as the Fed would implement the first of many rate hikes, as we all know. Interest rates soared, rent growth plateaued, and sponsors with adjustable rate loans have struggled to make payments since then. And we're seeing more and more properties go belly up. Robert Martinez, who founded Rockstar, said the only way to not default in this scenario would be to continue to write millions of dollars in personal checks or to do a capital call on what he called an unworkable deal. Anyone interested in the multifamily lending space should definitely check out Your feature, Isabella, on Arbor Realty Trust, that's in the September magazine. Thank you. Yeah, it's essentially a deep dive into Arbor's books. The firm is the biggest publicly traded lender with such a narrow focus on multifamily. And its bread and butter are those floating rate loans we talked about. It's seen delinquency spike 1,500% from December to June. So a big increase there. Okay, let's end on Airbnb. This summer, the short-term rental platform lost a lawsuit that tried to block these new regulations around short-term rentals in New York City. As a result, the rules went live last Tuesday. So the company called the new regulations, known as Local Law 18, a de facto ban on Airbnbs. The law requires owners to register their units with the city, which makes it much easier for the city to eliminate listings of illegal Airbnbs. What exactly is an illegal Airbnb in New York? So the city had already banned rentals if the listing was for fewer than 30 days unless the host was present, but it really struggled with enforcement. There were a bunch of illegal Airbnbs that cropped up. So this law is essentially a crackdown on that. And how are landlords feeling about this? What's their take? I mean, by and large, they're pumped. Owners were on the hook for fines if the city found out about an illegal Airbnb, even if they didn't know their tenant had listed it. So it relieves them of that worry in a big way because now the city is keeping better track. The outlier here, though, are owners of one and two family homes who rented out units and they say they relied on the income to pay their mortgages or their property taxes. So They're banned as well. All right. So let's get into the meat of our episode this week, crowdfunding, and what's next after the scandal that rocked the industry this summer. I'm going to rewind to June 2022. 
In an effort to fight inflation, the Federal Reserve expected to raise its interest rates again. The Federal Reserve had just made its third rate hike of the year. There was some general uncertainty in the market, but deal flow was definitely still happening. People were hopeful that companies would start returning to the office around Labor Day, which would have been a boost to the office market and ultimately office values. And CrowdStreet, a crowdfunding platform, had just closed an offering for an office building in Atlanta, the Atlanta Financial Center. This is directly from CrowdStreet's website. A financial center, an iconic centerpiece of Atlanta, being opportunistically purchased off-market, leading to potentially outsized risk-adjusted returns in an explosive tech-fueled sunbelt market. Wow, what a sentence. So explain what a crowdfunding platform is. Yeah, so a crowdfunding platform is a third-party website that offers investment opportunities on behalf of a sponsor, which actually makes the purchase. Sometimes there will be an offer for a specific property. Other times it's a fund or portfolio. But it's perfect for syndicators, groups that pool money from a large group of investors. Nothing transformed the investment world more than the invention of online trading. But while doors to stocks and bonds flew open, one valuable alternative asset class remained restricted. Commercial real estate's relative stability has made it increasingly attractive in the midst of a volatile stock market. But strict barriers to entry, high fees, and limited access have kept quality commercial real estate opportunities obscured from the individual investor. Until now. At CrowdStreet, we're unlocking the door to the next level of investing. Our innovative online marketplace provides individuals direct access to the broadest range of institutional quality commercial real estate offerings, giving you simple tools to manage your investments with total transparency. Invest with confidence, knowing that every offering has been expertly reviewed through a rigorous vetting process. At CrowdStreet, we're building a community where successful individuals and firms work together to maximize wealth, elevating your portfolio, and framing the future for your success. Invest confidently and build wealth with CrowdStreet. Well, it, it was really incredible because, you know, the traditional advice was that you would go to either stocks and bonds, you know, to invest your portfolio, and maybe you might rearrange it that, but you really didn't have access to a lot of these alternative investments that a lot of wealthy investors have used to, be, to become wealthy over, over time. So I liked the fact that it was like, hey, you didn't have to like know someone at the country club to, you know, give you a deal and you actually could like go on the internet and, and find these things. That's Ian Ippolito. He's the founder of a financial investment site called the Real Estate Crowdfunding Review and the Private Investor Club, which is basically a network for people to pitch and do due diligence on investment deals. And, they, and the prices were down. It wasn't like, you know, this, this might be like a $20 million deal or a $50 million deal, but individual bite sizes might be like $25,000 or $50,000. So it reduced the, the barriers to entry of coming into real estate, which I really liked. And normally what happens is they have to raise a certain amount to purchase it. So if they don't, then it, it doesn't work and everyone gets back their money. If they do, then the, the, the purchase is made and then it goes through. I asked Ian to walk me through the risks of crowdfunding too. So we got the sponsor themselves, the, the person that's posting, the company that's posting. There's risks there. And if you go into that particular example, there's some really bad risks that ended up materializing. But it's like, you know, is the sponsor going to stay 
solvent long enough to you know perform what they need to are they going to do a good job are they going to do it competently so there's risks at that level just buying a single property is a risk because it may not perform the way a whole portfolio will and that particular geography could go differently that particular asset class could go differently so there's risk on the property level and then kind of in the middle there's this risk of like okay well i want to invest in multifamily so like apartments for example that's a very different risk than office buildings. Like right now, office buildings are, are are not doing well, a lot of them anyway, especially after what happened with COVID and work from home. And so a lot of the performance that people were expecting, you know, didn't happen. So, you know, there's a risk of, oh, I might invest in the wrong asset class. So there's ways around it. You know, people can diversify and stuff like that, but there's definitely a lot of risk. Then at the property level, you have the risk of the debt. It's like, well, if there's too much debt and you can't pay it, you default. So um, there's definitely risks at multiple levels. And at the end of the day, this is an investment. Yes, it may be offered online and it's more accessible, but it still requires due diligence. Right. There are some people that will just jump into it without really knowing. I mean, I could never do that, but I feel that the, the way to do it is you really have to really understand all the different levels, understand all the risk before pulling the trigger. Yeah, it's accessible, but it's not easy because it takes a lot of work, actually, to to look at something like this. It's not like a five or 10 minute decision. Okay, so can we go back to the Atlanta Financial Center? It seems like that was a typical Crowd Street offering. Yeah, it definitely was. So the minimum investment was $25,000 with an expected five-year hold period. And through CrowdStreet, the sponsor ended up raising almost $54 million from 772 individual investors. Wow. Okay. And tell us about the sponsor. So the sponsor was Nightingale Properties, a Manhattan-based firm run by Eli Schwartz. The firm claims it has invested $10 billion in 22 million square feet of real estate across 22 states. And Nightingale has had some definite successes. Schwartz flipped the Coca-Cola building at 711 Fifth Avenue in Manhattan in 2019 for 937 million. Just a month prior, he had paid 909 million dollars. So, a profitable flip there. They've also partnered with billionaires and players that syndicate money from high net worth investors from the Middle East. But then we have the Atlanta Financial Center. Over the summer, it came out that Nightingale never actually closed the deal. In June, investors in the Atlanta Financial Center and another deal that Nightingale was supposed to be running in Miami appointed a fiduciary to figure out where on earth their money had gone. And the fiduciary, Anna Phillips, told investors in July, quote, the bottom line is that the money that was raised by both entities had been misappropriated. So allegedly the money was handed over to Nightingale, which was supposed to use it to buy the properties, but the sale never closed and the money was nowhere to be found. Right. So part of the issue was the money was never placed into an escrow account. And according to Phillips, only 125000 was sitting in a bank account for an entity tied to the Atlanta Financial Center, much, much less than, you know, that $54 million. For sure. And an account for the Miami Beach property was empty. So since then, the fiduciary has alleged that the money from the investors was diverted directly to accounts controlled by Schwartz. 
it's worth noting that Schwartz has not spoken publicly on the matter. At the sponsor level, it looks like a clear case cut of fraud, basically. So, you know, um, they were they have a contract where they're supposed to be investing in a specific property, um, at least according to, you know, the investors. I'll just say, you know, allegedly what happened is that uh, this sponsor took the money that was supposed to go into this property and allegedly has fed it off into the other pro- office properties and maybe even their own personal controlled investments and who knows what, what it was, but the, their entire kind of office called an empire was, it was not doing well. They, they, they had done well for a long time and then it started collapsing. And then, you know, it looks like this money was, it was allegedly misappropriated. So looks like uh, kind of like straightforward fraud, unfortunately. So the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice have both opened investigations into Nightingale. Nightingale and Schwartz are also working on a settlement with the fiduciary for the investors that was revealed in a court hearing last week, but nothing has been agreed to yet. No deal has been finalized. Okay. And then what about Crowd Street? Shortly after the fiduciary presented that pretty stunning information to investors, CrowdStreet immediately laid blame on Eli Schwartz and Nightingale. They, quote, demonstrated a blatant disregard for legal, ethical and moral standards and, according to CrowdStreet, violated their operating agreements with investors. CrowdStreet CEO Torstein did step down after all this happened, but there are still questions around how CrowdStreet could have allowed something like this to happen in the first place. I asked Ian about the regulations on a crowdfunding platform like CrowdStreet, but also others. It's kind of interesting because they're kind of like a middleman, right? So it's like they have some requirements, but actually not a lot. And I think sometimes the investors don't realize that and they probably think that there are more protections there than are, than are actually there. But as a, as, a, as a middleman, they do have certain obligations to make sure that certain information is correct. But uh, frankly, like a lot of it, no. Like, uh, and, and for example, as far as like escrowing, as far as the, the way the law works right now, like th- th- there is no requirement actually for them, which seems like a basic thing. Like, and, and a lot of the investors were like, well, gosh, it's like, you know, if you take money in, you're not going to just like hand it off to someone. Well, you know. The, the the situation is with the regulations of the way they are now anyway. And, and maybe there will be a change. Who knows? But the way they are around, they didn't actually have an obligation to do that. So, you know, they took this money in and they started raising it and they just started handing it off in pieces as it came in to the sponsor, Nightingale. And then allegedly Nightingale just started taking little bits of it and moving it off to wherever they want, send it off to this entity, send it off to this real estate deal that's not doing well, you know, allegedly, you know, all these different places. And so that's what happened. Now, since then, they have changed. And I, I know they are now um, doing an escrow. So, um, you know, that that will that will help st- stop a certain type of fraud, which is good. It doesn't stop all of them, but it will, will stop a certain type. The thing that was frustrating to me is that, you know, investors did inform both Nightingale and CrowdStreet that, look, there are material omissions here that, you know, and and to SEC, you guys have to disclose this. You can't just keep raising money and raising money and raising money for weeks and months on end without disclosing this. But that's, you know, ultimately what happened, you know, and I was very disappointed that, you know, that investors could report something so materially wrong and that it would take so long for it to be addressed and that money would continue to be raised. So, to me, I think a big thing that should change is that even I get it. These marketplaces are just middlemen. 
they, they don't have a responsibility to like make sure everything is right. But I feel that if a material problem is, is, um, reported to them, like at that point, they should have a responsibility to at least look at it. And if there's a problem, take it down. Like it should not be okay to keep raising and raising and raising. Sadly, this is not the first time that this has happened. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the MG Capital fraud that occurred a couple years ago, but it was also multi-million dollars of misappropriation. Now, this is alleged misappropriation now, but that one's like done deal. It's like Criminal charges were filed. Uh, you know, it's done. SEC made a final determination. It's not alleged. It was. It, it happened, and that one was a similar situation. Now, not with CrowdStreet, but with another platform where investors said, um, you know, there, there's there's some improprieties here that like they were guaranteeing a return, which you can't do. That's like impossible. That's like one of the signs of a Ponzi scheme. So from a PR perspective, it's not the best time to launch a crowdfunding platform. There's more scrutiny and skepticism around how these companies operate and what the risks may be. Despite that, there are new players emerging. Mark Drockman's Fund Rebel, for example. And to be fair, Mark founded Fund Rebel in June 2021. The company is a crowdfunding platform that allows investors to own shares of real estate. They have to hold that investment for a year, after which they can trade. So, you know, they've been around for a little while now. How are they exactly new to the space? Right. So it took about 18 months for Mark to bang out the details and get the okay from the SEC in December. Mark says that lengthy approval process is also what sets FunRebel apart from companies like CrowdStreet. It's, 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 a, it's a very tedious process. So the regulation A-plus process is very different than anything that you would see on a regular crowdfunding platform. So give us an explainer on regulation A-plus. So Regulation A-plus is an offshoot of the JOBS Act, and the JOBS Act is legislation President Obama signed in 2012. It took effect a few years later, but it really loosened how the SEC regulates small businesses. It cut down on reporting requirements, and it let retail investors, so folks without a bunch of money, get in on the game. Regulation A-plus opened the door for those unaccredited investors to get in on offerings. And over time, the limit on the maximum offering that firms could present to potential investors was raised. So in 2021, that limit was increased from $50 million to $75 million, which made it even more attractive for real estate deals. There were a couple people that realized that was $75 million per fund. It's a very viable option for real estate people to structure a fund like this. Normally, people wouldn't have looked at such a structure. We realized that because this allowed us to raise this amount of money, we can now go and solicit investors from anywhere all over the world, uh, as long as they're 18 and over and allowed to own securities in the United States of America. Fundrise is another platform which tapped Regulation A plus to launch. Last year, we had CEO Ben Miller on the podcast. Listeners will likely remember. So this is weedy, no doubt. But what Mark says differentiates his firm from platforms like CrowdStreet is that CrowdStreet operates under Regulation D. He operates under Regulation A+. We just went over that. Tell us about Regulation D. Last regulation, promise. So 
Regulation D existed before the Jobs Act, and it basically cut down on a lot of the reporting these private firms had to do with the SEC. That meant time saved and money saved for companies looking to tap it. And the SEC figured this diminished oversight was okay because under Regulation D, offerings could only be made to accredited investors and a small number of unaccredited folks. An accredited investor is someone with money, so high net worth or high income. And the idea there is that less oversight was needed because these people with wealth should be able to know how to invest wisely. The Jobs Act added a new provision under Regulation D, which said private firms could now advertise their offerings to investors. So as social media is booming, companies can now tap the internet to get the word out about their deals, so long as they sell to accredited investors. Right. So you can have a website and actually advertise deals. I can see how that would fuel the crowdfunding sphere. Right. And that's what CrowdStreet relies on, Regulation D. So little oversight, pre-scandal, at least. Okay. So FunRebel is operating under Regulation A+, which means they can tap non-accredited investors, but there is more oversight, more reporting. And I imagine that's a selling point for the platform amid this CrowdStreet mess. Yeah, that's exactly right. Unfortunately, the public, when they see the word crowdfunding, they kind of pull everybody together in crowdfunding. So when they see these different companies out there like CrowdSheet or whatever it is, they, they think that there is a similarity. The similarity is that there is an online presence for this investment, and that's how people would find the investment and be able to participate. But the truth is because these are most of the stuff that you see on CrowdStreet, these are for accredited investors. It's a very easy process for them to set up their funds, and there's very little regulation and oversight because they kind of realize that accredited investors should be smart enough and experienced enough to do their own due diligence on the project as well as the sponsors that are putting them together. With Regulation A+, um, they, they want you to be very, very specific in the draft that you're putting out there. So when you look at our fund draft, it states exactly what it is that you're going to be investing in. It shows exactly how your money is going to be allocated. Um, we have quarterly financial audits. Um, we're, you know, we're obviously SEC and FINRA compliance. So there's attorneys that we have to deal, deal with on a regular basis. So, there's a lot more transparency on what's going on with the money and where it's being held and how it's being allocated. So some have called this a democratization of the investing process, but there's also risk. Folks who may not have the market know-how to make a smart decision with their money could get spooked and want to pull out. That's bad for business. Investors may also overpay for their investment because they don't know any better, and that could impact their return. They could also get in on a bad deal. And we know that Grant Cardone has tapped Regulation A plus to fund syndicated real estate investments. He's also been sued for selling investors on a get-rich-quick scheme. A recent class action suit alleged that Cardone misled investors in social media posts targeted to them. So all that being said, how is FundRebel staking out new territory in the crowdfunding space? So the firm actually just landed its first deal in Hollywood, Florida. In June, it went into contract to buy Nine Hollywood, which is a 12-story apartment building. As we've discussed thoroughly, the market for deals right now is tough. Lending's tight, rates are up, the bid-ask gap is still there. But Mark said he saw the value in this project. It's our first asset for Fun Rubble that we're in contract for. That property 
would cost us as much to build that property right now if somebody gave me the land for free as the price that I'm buying it for. And it was an opportunistic purchase for whatever the situation was for the seller and his portfolio, which he had a large one. There was a lot of other stuff that they had going on. So we were able to step in and take one asset off of their portfolio to free up some of their equity. At the same point, we were able to get in there and take four or five years of planning and construction and negotiations that we would normally have not had to do at the same price point that we would have. We're doing it at a projected north of a seven cap. Um, we're being offered lots of lots of different, very solid debt propositions from a lot of lenders out there. So we're obviously in a very good situation at the moment and we're happy about it because we found this asset and it's the perfect asset for our first fund, but not everybody's going to find that asset. And to be fair, Mark acknowledged that crowdfunding poses risks to unsophisticated investors. He didn't name names about the platforms or syndicators that you know he's thinking of when he's thinking of these risks, but he did offer a word of caution for anyone looking to get into small-time investing. And I would even tell other people that are out there that are investing with other people that they should be wary because there are a lot of companies out there, especially small to mid-sized syndication development companies, that need to keep their businesses going by making acquisitions. If they're not doing deals, nobody's getting paid. So a lot of times these companies are going to be out there and they're going to be buying deals that the yields are going to be really, really thin and they're going to be a little bit aggressive on their projections and people just have to watch out what they're doing. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have a guest you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking to Related's head of office development about the trends he's seeing across the country. Tune in then.